chapter 2, page 725 in the church Bibles, if the Bible's unfamiliar with you. Again, Merry Christmas to you, and while you're turning to Luke chapter 2, we'll be in a few places in our Bible this morning, but this is where we'll start, and when we're through this morning, as we complete this great privilege that we have, um, if you have a question or um, anything about what we've said or sung or I've said this morning, I would be happy to answer that question for you when our time together this morning is through. Just a quote from Spurgeon I came across this week. We can learn nothing of the gospel except by feeling its truth. There are some sciences that may be learned by the head, but the science of Christ crucified can only be learned by the heart. So let's hear the word of the Lord, verse 8, chapter 2, Luke's Gospel. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and living in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with great with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men. On whom his favor rests. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together this morning. Our God and Father, we honor your name. We call and cry out for your help this morning as we learn these things from your word. God, you know and I know that it's impossible to do what we should by way of listening and thinking and believing, and me by speaking. It's impossible to do these things without your help, and so we cry out for your help now. Our preoccupation is to bring glory to your name and truth to your people. So we pray to that end, asking you to now take up this whole situation, this Christmas week, for your glory and the good of all people. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I think I'm learning that a difficult thing about the Christmas season as, as I grow older is it becomes increasingly easy to lose the wonder and to be awestruck in the fact that God became man and dwelt among us. Because life has its, has its way of just dragging on. But more importantly and more sadly, and this should break all our hearts, Wars continue on. Good men and women die. Children are still murdered, as we learned last week in Pakistan. Injustice is everywhere. Marriages on edge and the innocent are aborted year after year after year. And ladies and gentlemen, that is our world. That is our world. And it's not so wonderful. Longfellow was right when he said, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. 
And personally, I try to fight that temptation, which I admittedly must fight, because doubts come, perhaps too often as of late, but they do come. So I do what I should. I repent. I tell God I'm sorry that such doubts about the wonder, the magnificence, and the great hope of the Christmas story have crept in. And as always, I bet you could guess, I listen to Christmas songs and, and worship Jesus with Christian, Christian, Christmas hymns to help me. Some of those hymns are sad ones. They bring you to tears. Here's one. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Let there be peace on earth. Let the peace that was meant to be with God as Father, brothers all are we. Let me walk with my brother in perfect harmony. And then the refrain to take each moment and to live each moment in peace eternally. Let there be peace on earth. And let it begin with me. So I repent and, and I worship Jesus Christ. And then I read Christmas. All about it. So I reread the Christmas story from the pages of the Bible. I read Christmas poems. I read uh, uh, Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Because books help us. It's one of the privileges of reading. To learn from others. And this year I came across by chance an incredibly truthful and helpful statement from C.S. Lewis in his book Prince Caspian that was such a gentle, a gentle rebuke to me personally to, to fight that potential that lies in me as the years go by to, to lose the wonder and not be awestruck of the fact that God became man and dwelt among us. Because I do wonder why that happens to me. Listen to the story. Aslan, Aslan, and Aslan is a picture of Christ. Dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last. He bent forward, his warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into his large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, he answered. She said, not because you are. I am not. But listen to what he says. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Get that? Every year we grow, we will find Christ bigger. And loved ones in a world like ours, unless you have special powers, or you have a heart of stone, or you have your head buried in the stand, sand, who would not need year by year in this pilgrimage we call life with its sorrows and its sickness and its injustice and wars that mark so much of this little planet's existence, who would not need to find Christ bigger? But for that to happen, says C.S. Lewis, we're going to have to grow. So this morning with our Bibles open to different places, may God be at work and help us grow. Because we have to consider the promise that the angel gave of peace on earth and the world that we now live in. So there's three little points. If you have a worship folder, you can see them there. War, even with God. War because of God. Peace, the end of war, by God. So we should begin as we should with the Christmas story and, and the birth. So you piece the Christmas story together you ask yourself the question, okay, so why was it that these smelly outcast shepherds 
Why were they kneeling at the baby's feet? Why was it that the ancient stargazers traveled hundreds of miles just, just to see this child? Why did a king? Because you know, our familiarity with the story makes us not ask these questions. But why would a king get so tense and so murderous, a grown man, when he found out that a baby was born? Why all the fuss? I mean, babies are born every day. It happens here all the time at West Cohasset. More babies are coming. Lots more, in fact. Okay, so what was it about this baby that was so different? Well, to begin with, this baby was a promised baby. You'll remember in Isaiah chapter 9, and, and I would invite you to turn there. Isaiah chapter 9, in the context of spiritual and national darkness and lostness in ancient Israel, Isaiah, God's man, he wrote this. This is verse 2 of chapter 9. The people have seen a great light. And so you ask the question, what was it that pierced this darkness of their circumstance and, and increased their joy? And this is what it was. Verse 5, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Now, do you understand what is being promised here? What is being promised here is nothing less than the end of war. We are talking about peace, world peace. So how is this peace that is promised to come. You ready? Verse 6, in a child to be born. So the peace that is to come is through a child to be born. And there it is. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And if you think about that, that is quite a massive claim, especially when that claim is applied to a baby who's laying in a feeding bucket. So when the great company of angels appear in the field singing to the heavenly host and singing to the shepherds, announcing that great news of joy that will be for all people, what was their song of praise? Well, their song of praise was a song of God's promised peace. There it is. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And that is what drew these people to the baby. Jesus was God's son who would bring God's light into this dark world and his government would put an end to all war. And so this promised baby would bring world peace. World peace. But then you take an honest look at our world. And what could one say? Honestly, 2,000 years removed from that promise of peace. Yeah, right. Who are you kidding? World peace? Tell that to the Pakistani families who lost their children this past week in a terror attack. Tell that to the people of the Congo still, still reeling from civil war. Tell that to the people of Libya, Gaza. To the people of Bangladesh, Thailand, North Korea, Burma, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, the, the Cabrera slums in Nairobi. Tell that to our soldiers abroad. Not to mention the countless numbers of slaves in Asian sweatshops. Not to mention the addicted and criminally victimized living on the streets. Many of them are young men and women, teenagers, on our streets, selling themselves for a warm meal and a warm bed. Peace on earth. This is a world without peace. And the honest question has to come. It has to come because people are asking this question. Did God somehow miss something? Did he fail? Did the angels get it wrong? Or is it simply that God does not have the power 
to change things. Because any person that's honest can look at the world and say, this is a world without peace. And loved ones, listen carefully. If the facts of our world do not make us weep and become angry, it simply shows how sedated and how indifferent we have become as a society. And unless we live in fairyland, where we would try to block out these things, then none of these questions, I can guarantee you, none of these questions will arise. Now listen carefully. Whenever you begin to talk about world peace in the church, sometimes to some it sounds like you're a hippie. Remember that term way back when? It sounds like something from the 60s and 70s. I'm not sure if I told you about the Skipper Skipper Chuck show, which is pretty difficult to say. The Chipper, there it is, the Skipper Chuck show was a show that was on when I was a kid that I used to go to in South Florida. And Skipper Chuck had, this was his symbol during the 70s, peace, love, and happiness. Because you couldn't do this in that part of the world, peace. You couldn't date peace, but this was okay. Peace, love, and happiness. This was not good, you hippie, but this was okay. Peace, love, and happiness. I found out a report in the Los Angeles Times this week in their newspaper that the most frequently requested license plate in L.A. County in the year 1970 was one word, peace. By 1984, to change to, you ready? Go for it. Okay, so forget the suffering, forget the world out there, just go for it, whatever that means. But you see, our world will not let us go for it. Ours is a world without peace. And it has always been a world without peace. You're not but four chapters into the first book of the Bible, and there's already a family murder. 8,000 peace treaties have been signed and broken in the past 5,000 years, according to the International Law Association. That same survey said that of the past 5,000 years, only 286 of our years have known some level of peace and not known war. The CIA has more employees than the United Nations and its secondary organizations combined. Peace? Back in 1885, there was a poet named A. Houseman. And he wrote, I think, an almost prophetic poem to a generation and a half that would have to endure two world wars, one of which said would end all wars. And listen to what he writes. On the idle hill of summer, sleepy with the flows of streams, far I hear the steady drummer drumming like a noise in dreams, far and near and low and louder, on the roads of earth go by, dear to friends and food for powder, soldiers marching all to die. And you're like, okay, that's enough of that, right? Now you really do sound like a hippie. But listen, I say this all the time. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. If you read your Bible, listen to what the prophet Habakkuk said. Listen to his words, chapter 1, verse 2. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflicts abound. Therefore the law is paralyzed. And justice never prevails. The wicked him in the righteous. So that justice is perverted. The prophet Amos cries out the same thing in his own context. God's people in that context is sedated in luxury. They're preoccupied with their own personal temporal kingdom. They disregard the sufferings and injustice of others. But they still go to worship. 
So they're still going to church. And listen to what God says. Chapter 5, verse 23 of Amos in the Old Testament. Away with all the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of harps. But, and this is your God, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. Justice. Peace. And we hear so often the Christmas songs of world peace. And, and we cling to them. Some of us weep to them. But hope and history, they do not rhyme. They do not rhyme because there is no peace on earth. Many hope for it. A few struggle for it. But we do not have it. And loved ones, we need an answer. When you actually talk to people out there that are not in Christ, they ask these questions. And we need an answer because the promised child came with a promise that he will bring peace. And people mock that promise. And people ignore that promise. And some people are tormented by that promise. But there's another reason why the promised peace is questioned. First point, war even with God. Second point, war because of God. So some would say the world is a mess regardless of God, despite God. But others suggest that the world is a mess because of God. In other words, they say precisely because of people's belief in God, which brings wars and conflicts to this world. If you pay attention to these things, that's the new atheism. That's their line. And in today's climate, you need to mention just two words to prove the point. Just two words. Crusade and jihad. And those two words, crusade and jihad, give atheists such as Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Samuel, Samuel Harris a field day as they go from university to university telling those young students, hey, by the way, there is no God and God causes all the trouble in this world or the belief in God causes all this trouble in the world. And of course, you would say to them respectfully that the no God in life line has already been tried. It's called communism. Communism, no God, no religion. It failed miserably and millions of people have died in the 20th century alone under the no God regime. Okay, so we can put that to rest. But the other question that comes out of this is some, uh, if there is a God, okay, there is a God, then what is he doing? And why in the world do people do such terrible things in his name? Why? And people are asked this, asking that question. Let me give you one example. The search engine Google provides data every month of what people search for online. And as recently as 2007, under the listing of the who is questions and the what is questions, the top who is questions in 2007 were this. Number one, who is God? That was the number one question. Number two, who is, or excuse me, number four, who is Jesus? Number 10, who is Satan. And the number one what is question, and this just breaks your heart, the number one question that people are asking online is, what is love? What is love? And loved ones, those are the questions people are asking in their private moments. You see, it's no wonder. Most people believe in God. They just can't come to grips with God in light of reality. And, and maybe, I don't know this to be true, but maybe this kind of sugar-coated promised life of the 21st century Westerner makes for confused minds. So people mistakenly miscalculate. Okay, God, all power, full sovereign, full love, but the world's in a bloody mess. My life's in a bloody mess. 
Okay, let's check our math because we should check our math. Let's do this again. God, all power, all sovereign, fully love, but a bloody mess of a world and a bloody mess of a life. I mean, that's what you deal with in Christian counseling. When people come to you, what you have to do is help them see that the God who they believed in, who's causing them, if you would, so much mental trouble, might not be the God who is real. It might not be the God of the Bible. And we hope every Christmas time things will change. I mean, I still do, but hope and history will not rhyme. Okay, so before we go nuts, right? And we sit in the corner and we drink our eggnog and just say, what's the use? Because I do that sometimes. I shouldn't, but I do. There is hope. But here's the thing. There is ultimately only one hope. You see, the Bible is a very, very realistic book. It's full of passages like the one that we read from Habakkuk and Amos, where people are crying out to God, saying, how long? Calling on God to be the God he has believed and known to be. But at the same time, the Bible deals with reality. And, and we should thank God for this because then we will not become delusional or inactive or become what I call the, the false positive, right? So it's the kind of person that's, a, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Well, that's fine. You may have that joy and I'm glad, but some of us are trying to think through this world and we can't do it with all that noise. So please be that way, but just give me some time to think because it does take a whole Bible. And it takes a whole view on life to make a whole Christian. And for some of us, that's hard. Our reality right now may not be so terrific right now. And if that's you, I am terribly sorry about that. I really am. But more so, the world's reality is not so terrific either. Last Saturday night, New York Times, I was reading, not this Saturday, last Saturday, 1.7 million refugees from Libya, or Syria, excuse me, because of their civil war. 1.7 refugees. I can't even imagine that number. Where do they go? What do they do? How do they eat? How do they sleep? How do they stay warm? And loved ones, if we are used to thinking about God, always leading with our own private hunches, religious hunches about who God is, and we're not guided by God's word, not only is this pride, but we will grow in unbelief, and our vision of God will be blurred, and we probably will be very, very disheartened. Why? Because we've made up our own God in our mind. So we need to get to the third point. Number one, war, even with God. Number two, war because of God. Then finally, peace. The end of war by God. So God sees this world. He's not ignorant of the things. He, he knows what's going on. And the, Bible, the Bible's explanation is God is not the world's problem, but we are. In other words, the Bible's answer to why is this a world without peace? It is a world without peace because people live in a world without God. That's it. A world without peace because people live in this world without God. People like me yield to sin. And what does every sin deserve? And better yet, what does sin bring? It brings what? A war with God on a personal or international level. And it will bring God's wrath and God's curse on an eternal level apart from Jesus Christ. So don't be any mistake about that. Now if you would too, I would invite you to turn to Colossians 1 for a minute. <clears throat> I'm going to get a drink here and clear my throat. 
And I just want to spend the rest of our time in Colossians 1. Peace, the end of war by God. I want you to look at verse 21 first. Once you were alienated from God. Verse 21, chapter 1, Colossians. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind, minds because of your evil behavior. Ephesians 2 says it like this, that as for you, you were dead in your sins and transgressions when you gratified the cravings of your sinful flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Now that's not a flattering picture. But you see, the world rejects God. And the Bible teaches that by dent of creation, everyone knows there is a God. By dent of their conscience, everyone knows there's a God. And by dent of Christ-centered preaching, man is compelled then to think about God. But men and women still reject God. They're, they're not all atheists. They're worse, maybe. They're religious. Because man as man lives in a way that he should like. And they live the way they would like to live rather than the way God wants him to live. Man keeps God on a leash and yanks on the leash when God is needed and lets go of the leash when God is not needed. And so we approach God on our own taste. So no wonder people do terrible things in the name of God or in the name of Christ. God is the excuse for a great number of individuals' wickedness. And both Christian and non-Christian people do this. Because our independent mind, our fallen nature mind is, is hostile to God. And that's the whole story of the Bible from Genesis 3 and 4 onwards. Genesis 3, alienation from God. I don't trust you, God. I think I'll take a bite of that fruit. Alienation from God and each other, chapter 4. I don't like the way you uh, want to be worshipped, God, so someone's going to have to pay. It'll be my brother. Now ask yourself this question. If we are framing a life... And this is so dangerous for our time because we can almost kind of do it in our own little minds. If we are framing a life wherein which we call all our own shots, in other words, to be our own God, then what happens when we, as it will inevitably happen, when we run into someone else that is in our way? Well, I can tell you at least two things. Number one, isolation. What is the problem of our culture? Social, social scientists tell us we're so isolated. One of the reasons why we're so isolated might be perhaps because we can't stand it when we don't get our way. And so you get out of my way or get out of my life because I want my way. That could be one. Isolation. But the other one is what? When someone gets in our way, whether personal or international, war. War. You talking to me? Isn't that how these things start? You talking to me? And then war. So whether it's a divorce or a breakup on a personal level or it's terror or war on an international level, the world is without peace because the world tries to live without God. No peace with man because there's no peace with God. And loved ones, please don't kid yourself. No peace with men and women and young people because there's no peace with God. And that's where the Christmas story comes in. That's why the incarnation is so important. Do you see it there in verse 19? Colossians 1 is full of remarkable words. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Christ. And through Christ, get this, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on the earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
And that's why verse 21 is so important. Yeah, you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But, verse 22, what happened? Well, you changed. Well, no, you didn't. Paul says this to these Christians in Colossae. God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. You see, it's too simplistic to have a hope or have no hope in God because of the problems of peace, whether it's personal or international. Because if we do that, we completely misjudge the problem. So it's bigger than just remove wars on the, on the world. God must remove the cause of wars in the world. And again, that takes us right back to the incarnation. World peace. God would have to be born in a human, as a human being. God would have to endure the humiliation of being flesh and blood and being tempted and tried. God would have to be born in a cow shed and spend his early years on the run. And finally, if you can believe this, God would have to die as a criminal on a cross. And that, and only that, brings peace. And that's what the Bible says. It is only that which brings the promise peace. Again, verse 20 of Colossians 1. By making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Removing all our hostility and all our rebellion. And removing all the I can do what I want sins. In order that we would be reconciled to God. Because at the cross, God has made peace. Eternal peace, yes. But it comes at a great cost. The death of God's only son. It brings a great reward. The greatest of victory. Peace with God. Because at the cross humanity sees what they are and what they're not. And humanity sees who God is and who God is not. not. And loved ones, the victory that Christ has won for us is just the start. It's just the beginning. And faith says, listen carefully, we actively wait. That's what faith says. We actively wait. Because this world... This world's only hope for peace is God's plan to reconcile himself through the cross. Again, God's plan to reconcile the world to himself is for world peace is through the cross. Because the risen Christ accomplishes his purposes. So a child is born. The child is Jesus. He's the true king. And him him alone is to be found the peace humanity needs And this child's kingdom is forever. And this is not rhetoric. This is reality. And this is not empty optimism. But this is truth. In fact, you could say this is coming truth. Listen to J.I. Packer. Optimism hopes for the best without any guarantee of its arriving. And is often no more than whistling in the dark. Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of the promises of God as when at some Christian burial services it is said over the corpse, ensure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best, the best is yet to come. 
The best is not now, no matter how great it is. The best is yet to come. So God will remove war. And God will remove the causes of war to bring peace with him. God will do this to completion. But loved ones, this is a long, painful, costly process. And yet God pays all of it. God pays all of it so that the road to hell, the road that rejects his peace, means that one has to climb over his cross. They have to climb over his cross, says C.S. Lewis, to get there. And in, the, and in the meantime, every imperfect Christian like myself has the obligation, has the obligation to present the message of peace, the message of reconciliation with God through Christ alone into this war-torn world. Loved ones, we have the obligation to cry out to God, how long? Oh God, how long must we wait? I, I'm curious about your prayers. Do you say that? How long, oh God, how long do we have to be here? We have the obligation to cry out to God, to be dissatisfied with our world, like Habakkuk, injustice, hatred, discord, all the wars. We have the obligation to cry out to God, God, forgive me when I war with you and I war with others in the world. So we have the obligation to bring his peace, his peace on the earth. So I suspect we have a choice to make this Christmas. To advance the gospel, to advance God's message of peace in the station and places of our life. Prayer, worship, proper living, the emotion of the self for the common good, dissatisfied with status quo, knowing that our Father is pleased to bless and honor a life such as this. Or, listen carefully, we live in our make-believe world, in our own little world, And we hope that the enemy never comes to our gates, at least in our lifetime. One last quote from J.I. Packard. There are many whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the sub-middle-class sections of this community and world Christian and non, to get on by themselves. The Christmas spirit does not shine on the Christmas snob. For the Christmas spirit is a spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow men, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others, and not just their own friends. And in whatever way there seems need. Peace. World peace. Peace with God. It was promised and it is coming. And my only question for you is are you ready? And if you are ready, then my other question for you, what of others? What of others? Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
and of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And loved ones, there can be no better words than that. Merry Christmas. Let's bow together as we pray. Just keep your eyes closed for a minute. Yesterday evening, I came across a wonderful quote in a movie, and I'm just going to read it to you and add a little line to it. The quote was, if men long for home more than gold, this world would be a more merry place. And so I would just add, if men and women long for home more than they did gold, of course, and more than they would long for personal satisfaction and personal fulfillment, surely this world would be a more merry place. Our gracious God, we thank you that in Christ we can have our sins forgiven. We thank you that in Christ there is peace and there is a promised peace that this world has never known yet. We thank you that you came in humble circumstances and you came in lowly circumstances. You made yourself small, fathers, in this big world so that peace would be available to all of us. So as we think about these things and we think about our world as we must, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ captivate our minds, capture our lives, redirect them if needed for the glory of your name and for the good of all people on this earth. And so, Father, may the grace of your Son and your love and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours both today and every day until Christ returns or you call us home. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen.